Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Chicago voters are casting a ballot on much more than the President of the United States. Some of the races we will be voting on include the Cook County State's Attorney, over 60 judges, our Water Reclamation District Commissioners, and changes to our taxes. With all these races, candidates, and issues, casting an informed ballot can seem like a challenge. But... Chicago Votes, a nonpartisan organization, is here to provide you with information on the candidates and issues on the ballot. Their 2020 voter guide is available digitally at chicagovotes.com and chicagoreader.com. Pull it up on your laptop, take it with you into the voting booth on your phone, and feel confident in knowing who and what you are voting for. chicagovotes.com rediscover our fascinating city this summer on a walking tour from the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Our entertaining and expertly trained docents will guide you through the Chicago you've been longing to explore, from magnificent downtown architecture to awe-inspiring neighborhood gems. If it's worth seeing, we'll take you there. Get tickets at architecture.org forward slash tours. The stories of the city begin at the CAC. You know, for the last few weeks, ladies and gentlemen, my liberal friends have been calling me up every day, crying, sobbing. They're so scared of the election. They're so afraid of a repeat of 2016. And, you know, and Trump has gotten into their brain. All his trash talking and his bravado and having rallies while he has COVID and he sneezes on his supporters and liberals are losing their minds. They're, they're so brainwashed by Trump. Well, I thought it might be a good idea just to break through the clutter, break through the brainwashing, maybe help liberals out a little bit, bring on a good friend of the show, Dan Cohen, uh, pollster, political strategist extraordinaire. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And so, yeah, this is one of my favorite themes, the way in which Donald Trump has gotten into the minds of many of my dear liberal friends, uh, not my lefty friends. My lefty friends are a sterner stock, but my liberal friends, their knees are knocking. Uh, so, Dan, why don't you try to help people out? And let's just break it down a little bit, some general areas that people should be studying in terms of what the polls mean. And the first issue is, what are the differences between the polls of today in 2020, just a few weeks ahead of the uh, general election, and the polls that existed back in, back in 2016 when it was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump? Right. So there's, there's a number of uh, pretty important differences. Uh, first off, uh, Biden's numbers right now are better than Clinton's numbers um, were in 2016. Uh, by at, at least a couple points. Um, you know, it depends on exactly which polls you look at, how you aggregate things. Uh, his lead in the swing states uh, is a little bit stronger than Clinton's, and that's just looking at the, uh, at, at the top lines. Um, two other things are important to keep in mind, I think. Uh, one is, at this point, this number of days before 
uh, the election in 2016, uh, Clinton got a positive bump because the tape of Donald Trump um, describing where he liked to grab people um, had just come out. And so he lost a significant standing for the course of, um, you know, really a couple weeks uh, after that happened. And it took him a while to get over that and recover from it. Um, in fact, one of the debates um, lent itself toward that. Um, but the bigger piece of it that I think is important is in 2016, this, this, to the extent that there were, you know, swing voters moving back and forth, they're trying to make up their minds. Uh, they did not have a favorable opinion of Hillary Clinton. Now, they did not have a favorable opinion of Donald Trump either. But what's the most significant difference that I see in the numbers this time from last time is that Biden's favorability is actually quite strong. Um, he has a, you know, the averages that are out right now, he has a net positive favorability, is, you know, favorability minus unfavorability. Uh, of around plus six percent, um, when Hillary Clinton's was usually about negative ten uh, through the month leading up to the election, and dropped, you know, significantly lower than that. So w- when you're looking at the robustness of the numbers, you know, it's a lot easier for some. You know, if someone is leaning toward the Democrat, but they don't like the Democrat, it takes a lot less for them to move and switch uh, than if they do like the Democrat. And what we're seeing in the numbers, and these aren't just the national numbers, the swing states as well, Biden's favorability is going to make that lead a lot more difficult to move. You know, I would I would never say that, you know, anything is impossible. Uh, you know, I, I you know don't think that we should be complacent, obviously, and I don't think that anyone is because the stakes are clearly what they are, but the numbers ought to be a lot more robust. And looking a little below the surface of just the head-to-head, you see that the people who are supporting Biden like Biden, in addition to not wanting Trump to be reelected. And it just takes so much more to appreciably move those numbers. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's a much better situation for all of those reasons than in 2016. All right, let's go back to something you said at the outset. You were uh, going back down, taking a trip down memory lane to 2016. And you recalled the, the release of the Hollywood Access tapes. I remember very well. There was uh, I was watching the World Series. The Cubs were in the World Series. And uh, when the, the Hollywood Access tapes, that's the tape uh, where Donald Trump uh, was uh, heard talking to Billy Bush, talking about grabbing women by their private parts, uh, boasting about it and uh but then soon thereafter i believe the comey letter was revealed in which jim comey uh, james comey was saying that uh, they may be re- uh, investigating hillary clinton's emails uh, a little further and so whatever gains uh that trump or that hillary made because of the hollywood access tapes there was a loss because of the comey revelations which suggests dan a volatility this is where I was going. A volatility in 2016 that doesn't exist now. And my theory is that Donald Trump is far more what uh, more of a target or an issue today than he was. There was a, than he was in 2016. There was an uncertainty about Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, you may not like him, but 
You didn't know what he was going to do. Now we know what he's going to do. Do you buy my theory? Yeah, I think that's one of the factors involved. And, um, you know, but but it's always, uh, you know, e- even when there's a referendum aspect, uh, when there's an incumbent, you know, there's still a case that people are deciding between two people. And uh, Donald Trump was not a known quantity and Hillary Clinton was. And for, you know, for better or for worse and for a complicated array of reasons, uh, you know, her favorability was very, very low. Uh, she, she had some of the highest unfavorable ratings of any Democrat in the country. Donald Trump, by the way, four years ago, also had the highest unfavorable ratings of any Republican in the country. Um, but but that volatility that, that you speak of definitely existed more. Um, but the people who were moving, the people who found it easy to move away from Trump when the Access Hollywood tape came out were folks who did not like either one of them. And likewise, the people who moved uh, back to Trump and away from Clinton after the, uh, the Comey investigation was opened back up also did not like either of them. And that's just not a backdrop that is similar to what we're looking at today. All right. Uh, let's talk about the impact of that first debate. Uh, Donald Trump clearly went into the debate with the sense that if he uh, attacked Joe Biden relentlessly, uh, he would be the beneficiary. Uh, what's your sense of what the impact of that first debate was? So I think it's incredibly generous that you suggest Donald Trump had a thought process. Going into the- <laughs> okay, valid point. <laughs> um, you, know, he, uh, you know, I was commenting four years ago. Going, I, I found the debates um, really fascinating. I always find the debates fascinating because I think people kind of, you know, treat them a little bit as uh, it's like debate team and they want to score who won the debate when, when debates really just serve as a way for voters to have questions answered for them. And so when you look at it from the perspective of the voters, taking a look at, you know, like what are they wondering about? Trump so easily could have performed better than debates four years ago. I mean, I I guess you'd argue he did well enough. (laughs) Um, But he, so each one of the debates four years ago, it took him about 20 minutes before he started interrupting and being really belligerent. Um, And it it was mind boggling um, to just think that if he had acted like a grown up. In those debates, you know, he, he, he you know, it, it would serve him far better because that's the question people were asking. They knew who Hillary Clinton was. They were wondering, who is Donald Trump and do we trust this person to, to run the country? And all he needed to do was act like a grown up and he couldn't do it. Uh, this past debate that we just had was that, uh, you know, uh, he was described, I, I forget who described him as a, a petulant child. Um, it, was, it was that on on steroids, um, it was it was absolutely remarkable that behavior. And look, as soon as we started getting data, not on who uh, people felt won the debate, because that is not what dictates movement in the polls. Once we started getting data on who people were planning on voting for after the debate. That's where the, the, I'll call it a surge, even though, you know, these are marginal changes, 
But that's when the numbers started to really decline for Trump and move up for Biden. And even though it's only a matter of maybe, you know, three or four percent, that's huge when it comes to a general election electorate. So that debate was just uh, uh, so damaging for him. Um, it, it confirmed anything that, that, that people were um, concerned about uh, with his presidency. And, and frankly, it, Biden barely registered uh, because the only takeaway from the debate was Trump being so belligerent and interrupting. And, you know, it doesn't matter what Biden did. All right. Uh by the way, that point about Biden not mattering, people have been coming on this show. I make no, uh, I don't hide this, Dan. I'm of the leftist persuasion. So I was for Bernie. Uh, that's where I come from. But I have a lot of Biden types come on the show all the time. I, uh, anybody who's a Democrat is pretty much welcome to the show. I always say we go for Biden uh, left. Biden's like the far right on this show. And um, all my Biden friends who came on the show said, Ben, you don't understand that Joe Biden's strength is the fact uh, that he's just not Trump. He's so blatantly not Trump. And it's like he is non-existent to a certain degree. And that's what you were just saying. Yeah, you know, without without question. And and, I mean, one of the things, you know, it's funny because you can get when you're looking at these debates, uh, like you put on your clinical hat. And then you get into this like, oh, God, like, why is Donald Trump doing that that stuff? That makes no sense. And you have to stop and remind yourself, no, that's good. I want him to lose. He's terrible. Um, But like (laughs) Biden was not very good in that debate. Um, You know, you look at I mean, just it's if you watch Fox News, um, which I, I hope people do once in a while, just as a reminder, you know, like what the narratives are going on. They had some great footage of Biden campaigning yesterday where, uh, you know, he, he talked about how he was running for the Senate and he referred to Mitt Romney as um, that Mormon. Um, and there's a number, you know, Biden does not look great. He does. I don't buy into the, you know, the, the online diagnoses or anything like that. I don't think there's any evidence that he's he's dealing with some kind of dementia or 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 any of that but he's he's not very focused uh he has a hard time addressing specific questions and and answering them and he um and he misstates things a lot but yeah he's not donald trump and he has a long record so there's a comfort about him when he misstates something people go well, you know, we know what he meant, which is fine. I mean, that's a kind of a grown-up way to, to listen to someone who misstate, not try to define someone just by their misstatements. But he's he's not. There, there's not a lot about how he campaigns or his platform um, that are remarkable. But it's totally fine. It doesn't matter. He he is not Donald Trump, um, and that is literally what people are looking for in this election. Well, I could tell you, and I may have said this to you in the past, uh, I lived through the daily years uh, in Chicago, Richie uh, M. Daly, Baby Daly, and that was the the 90s into the O's. And uh, Richard M. Daly uh, was as inarticulate as Joe Biden in his own way. They have different styles of inarticulateness. And he was never, 
ever, ever the recipient of a voter backlash because of that. People, it, it's, it's your point. They, well, I, 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 I understand what Daly's getting at, or if you get all red and flustered, yeah, he's emotional, he's real. Uh, whatever, for whatever reason, they were sold on Daly, and they were not going to hold him accountable uh, for his verbal ineptitude. I feel it's the same with Joe Biden, it's never bothered me, Dan. Maybe it's because I've lived through those daily years. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden's inability uh, to complete a sentence sometimes and figure out where he's going with a sentence. I just didn't think voters would hold that against him because he reminds it just it's a certain type and reminds me of daily. Your thoughts? Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's exactly right. Uh, that, you know, I think partisans, and I don't mean this by party, just, um, you know, Partisans look at anything of the, you know, with the person that they don't like, and it's it, it. They conclude, see, that proves I was right. This person is horrible, or they're dumb, or they're, you know, and it's like most people who are just trying to make sense of things. You know, you see someone fumble over their words, and it's like, all right, well, that's that doesn't answer the question of how someone's going to be in office. Um, you know, and it ought not to. I mean, it's, it's again, I think it's a very grown-up way to look at candidates to allow for uh, them tripping over their words because um, it's, it's not an indication of how someone's going to perform. And, and that's where, um, you know, I, I get really concerned. You know, I, I'm not one to overreact about things. But when I watch, you know, Biden had a town hall four or five days ago that I watched, and anytime he was asked a question and then he veered off talking about God knows what and <laughs> sentences, you know, I, I was, I would watch that and get really concerned. But at the same time that I remind myself, like almost no one's paying attention and, and people know that he's like that. So even though Fox news is going to compile every one of his misstatements and, and, and show it as quote conclusive proof that he's, you know, not fit to hold office. It's not going to move that many people. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. I, just, ahead. I, I think that's a good thing, actually, you know, even though so many people do it with the folks they don't like, I think it's good that, that people aren't judging someone by them fumbling over their words here and there. No, I, I, I'm with you 100%. I know your candidate uh, in uh, 2015. I always thought that Chuy Garcia, who was running, we're just dealing with local. We'll get back to national. Don't worry, folks. I'll, I'll leave the local. But I always thought that uh, Chuy Garcia, uh, he, he had some of those daily qualities. He was not the most articulate guy in the world. Uh, and uh, I remember his debates with Rom who thought he was so slick. I don't lie, I don't even want to relive it. But again, there was a genuineness uh, to Chewy Garcia that I thought uh, was a strength, actually. Uh, and uh, I remember many liberals who, t- who were justifying their vote for Rom telling me, but Ben, how could you be for Chewy Garcia? The guy can't get a sentence out. I'm like, you just voted for 30 years of Daily. I never <laughs> saw those standards with Daily. Now all of a sudden you gotta have the King's English to, to be your mayor. 
You get what I'm saying, Dan? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that, um, and, and I, uh, you know, I, I had the, the pleasure of uh, working with Chewy, including on with some of the debate prep uh, for some of those debates. And, you know, that's, and he had, I, I thought, like some incredible moments and some weak moments in terms of debating, but he's clearly a very smart guy who understands this stuff. He understands the city. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of it was, I mean, Rom had an insane amount of money yes. and they ran a blatantly, uh, you know, racially coded, if not directly racist campaign of just like, well, that guy's fucking dumb and you can't trust him. to run. Yes. Yes. That was their campaign. Uh, and they had the major editorial boards of all the leading mainstream newspapers on their side. All right. Let's not leave, uh, relive that uh, anymore. Let's move on. I want to ask you a question. I told you I was going to ask you this. Uh, this is always on my mind and that is lying to pollsters. You're a pollster. Yeah. Uh, so, there is this notion that exists in the world uh, that there was a certain amount of duplicitousness on the part of voters when they were being polled back in 2016. Uh, and it works two ways. We'll deal with the first way first. Uh, white people who were embarrassed to confess that they could uh, be supporting such a doofus like Donald John Trump lying to the pollster. Uh, and m many liberals have, have said they don't, take any comfort in the polls because they believe there's a certain amount of lying that's still going on yeah. uh, on the parts of white uh, voters. Uh, discuss this. How prevalent is lying uh, among pollsters and what can pollsters do about it? So um, there's a, a, okay, there's, there's two uh, pieces of that. One is to look at 2016 and the polling, first of all, the, the national polling was, was very good. And the, the, the variances around, you know, states that moved appreciably that, that took people by surprise. Um, when you look at, there, there was a change in the composition of turnout, right? And so one thing that explains polling being off is simply you're polling the wrong group of people. If 5% of the people you're polling aren't actually gonna vote, that's gonna cause an error. Or if there's, another group of people who you're not polling at all because they don't normally vote, but they're excited. Again, that will cause an error. Uh, but it's also the case that, you know, upwards of 80% of the folks who did not like either candidate, right? The swing voters in the 2016 election ultimately uh, voted for Donald Trump, um, which push him more, especially in those places where there was a larger number of those voters. Um, now, that does not in itself mean that there couldn't be a systemic bias in polling for the, the stuff going on right now for 2020. And I, but I just want to bring that back around to, you know, like talking about the peripherals and the favorability. Uh, you know, someone who is not wanting to admit that they're voting for Donald Trump um, which could exist more this time than four years ago. That's plausible. Um, they're not likely to say that they have a favorable opinion of Joe Biden, right? They're like the other numbers that express the, the robustness of Biden's lead mm -hmm. are falling into place to have remarkable consistency. So even if people don't want to say something positive about Trump, 
there's nothing that compels them to say something positive about Biden. And yet we are seeing those positive numbers. We're seeing favorability that is pushing over 50%, um, the head-to-head numbers that are over 50%. That's not indicative of people not wanting to admit uh, Trump support. Got it. All right. Now let's do it. The, the second part of my lying uh, to pollsters, and that's uh, the fibbing that goes on by uh, black voters. You've done a lot of polling in your life. Uh, I'm curious how accurate you think pollsters are when it comes to gauging uh, black voters and who they're going to vote for or who, in the case of an exit poll, who they have voted for. Yeah, I mean, I think the same uh, kinds of factors um you know, it exists, uh, you know, when you're looking at, if there is an assumption within any community, um, and, I mean, and this, this deals with, you know, if there are, um, you know, thinking about a community, urban African-American voters, uh, you know, middle-class suburban African-Americans, uh, you know, suburban white people, would, if the bulk within a community is overwhelmingly saying that, this particular vote is unacceptable based on our norms, you know, there's going to be a chance that people will not want to acknowledge they feel differently um, from the the folks with whom they have an affinity. Um, I don't think that's different. Um, You know, what makes it different is the overwhelming uh, democratic leaning with African-American voters generally, Um, you know, but if there's an indication of it, um, that, that there's a discrepancy bet- um, between what we're seeing in the polling and in outcomes, I don't think that there's, um, you know, I don't think there's any kind of uh, regular occurrence of that sort of bias that, that's really uh, showing itself in the polling. Let me ask you this. When you were the pollster for Chewy back in 2015, did did you see uh, much of a difference between the actual voting that occurred on election day and the poll, what the polls were telling you in terms of the black vote? So I, I just uh, for clarity purposes, I didn't actually do the polls for Chewy. I, I uh, joined the campaign for the runoff as um, you know, when he staffed up. Um, but I was, you know, I was one of the people who's, who's had his nose in spreadsheets the whole time. Um, you know, the polling for, for the most part was uh, pretty accurate for that race. Um, there were there were areas of disagreement among the people on the campaign on um, what lessons to derive from the polling. Um, but you know the polling that occurred immediately going into like after the the first round, um, the, the 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 most immediate polls at that point had Rom and Chewy very close. And by the time the um, Chewy's campaign had, had kind of, you know, reorganized to really get into the runoff, that the, the Rom lead had expanded. Um, and so the demographic breaks, you know, there was uh, a really dramatic age break. Chewy did far better uh, with younger voters uh, across ethnicities um, across the city. Um, and by far the largest uh, undecided in the race uh, was with black voters. Um, and that maintained throughout. But when it, when it came to the actual results, um, you know, the polling had ROM with approximately, I mean, the, the polling varied 
more than, you know, say the presidential polling is varying. I, I think it can be difficult sometimes if you don't understand what the composition of the electorate is going to look like for a municipal race to get that exactly right. But, you know, the polling had Chewy down by the, you know, low double digits, and, and that's around where it came in. That's where it came in, yeah. All right, let's talk about, go back to the presidential and talk about something that's really startled me in the last uh, three days. Not quite sure what to make of it. Get your thoughts on it. Uh, we're breaking it down now, moving away from the national polls and talking about state by state. There are three states that uh, at the start of this presidential cycle had been just generally put into the Republican category. And now they're being viewed as up for grabs, which I am really struggling with this one. Uh, Dan, it goes against all the conventional wisdom. Those three states are Texas, Iowa, and Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and Donald John Trump cannot possibly win, in my humble opinion, uh, if he... Well, definitely he can't win if he loses Texas or Ohio. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure he can win if he loses Iowa either. What is going on? Let's start with Texas. Uh, that explains the fact that it's just basically a statistical tie right now with the polls. Yeah. Um, so I think that. Um, so, first of all, the, the factors that. Um, and we're, we're, we're seeing increasingly swing states are looking in the, in the polling more like the national numbers kind of generally, which is, um, which is really good for Biden, uh, just plainly. Um, most of the things that we were talking about with the national numbers exist in the states. Um, and there are some differences regionally, right? So like the northern swing states are pretty much going to follow the same patterns. Um, if, if you get down to, you know, in the southern areas, especially states that have uh, really large Latino populations, um, there, there's going to be more uh, fluidity and more likelihood that those states don't follow the same trends as some of the northern states. Um, but what we're looking at is that, you know, the, the, the voters who voted for, you know, that's, you, you look at the folks who voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and then voted for Trump or sat out, right? Like we see in the number, like it's clear the numbers that we have, like those voters are way uh, disproportionately moving toward Biden if they're not already with him. If that is a trend which continues, if the undecided voters currently who have been moving toward Biden continue to move toward Biden, then um, there is a really good chance that, you know, uh, that you mentioned, you know, Iowa, Ohio, Texas, like those could swing. Um, certainly, um, you know, I was just looking earlier at, you know, Trump has been abandoning kind of, you know, ad buys in, in some of the northern states. Um, I believe that I saw, you know, uh, like Wisconsin and Michigan, for example, where Biden's lead has been really strong. Um, but when you're looking at the turnout patterns, which are, you know, one of the two ingredients for what's, what, you know, what the outcome of the election is going to be, it's harder to predict. Um but the, the short answer is that there are marginal changes 
um, with most demographic groups um, and in most uh, geographic groups on a scale that is incredibly uncommon. Uh, Nate Silver the other day suggested that this could be as big a blowout as uh, the 1984 uh, Reagan victory over Mondale. But even that is weird to compare it to because Reagan was the incumbent uh, then. Like for a challenger to see this kind of stuff, I mean, this is unprecedented. And thus, it's hard to predict exactly uh, how far this could go. Um, I think that if you look at the debate, Donald Trump's uh, COVID diagnosis, his response after coming out of Walter Reed and stuff he's been doing since. I mean, I think that Trump seems intent on why, on giving Biden a wider uh, margin than he has even now. Um, but yeah, we could see a blowout. And But I mean, look, by the same token, it, it's only a small number of swing states that would only have to move back by a handful of points to put this race very in, in play. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Uh, that you mentioned two things that was next on my list. Uh, his bizarre uh, response to COVID uh, and uh, his performance in the debate. I'm thinking of possible game changers that could go in Trump's favor as we head down the stretch. Uh, one is, I think we've already eliminated as a game changer his bizarre reaction to uh, having COVID. Uh, the other, it's a potential. There's one more debate. There's probably going to be one more debate unless Trump blows that. Uh, and then there's the issue of suppression which I take very seriously. They're trying, they're bending over backwards to do voter suppression. And I can think of South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, Wisconsin, where they're everything from limiting the number of voting boxes that people could deposit their ballots in uh, to keeping felons from voting, going to court in Florida to keep felons from voting, um, to constantly undermining or in California, they do it the other way. They have illegal boxes for Republicans, man. So they, they, they play to win. So when you think about those two possibilities, the debate having an impact and voter suppression, what do you see? Well, I, I can't imagine. I mean, just based on the theory that future behavior is best predicted by past behavior, I can't imagine that Trump will behave well in the upcoming debate. So... Um, I, I don't see that as a likely game changer. Um, I, I, I think that if Trump could actually let Biden potentially dig himself his own holes, then who knows what could happen. Um, but I don't think Trump is capable of letting Biden go down any road <laughs> far enough to, to be susceptible to that. Um, in terms of... Uh, voter suppression, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, a long-standing part of the Republican playbook, and it's effective. Um, and it has seemingly been ramped up more this election than in past elections. But it, it has always been the case that, uh, you know, that elements within the Republican you know, party will do what they can whether it's uh, by legislative methods or um, 
voter intimidation or voter confusion or other access. That's a standard part of their playbook. It's difficult to predict what that will do, but I think what's helpful to remember is they do this all the time. So when we are thinking about the impact, and I'm, I'm not um, poo-pooing that. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely horrible, and I don't say that as a partisan. I mean, it's just, it's really... Um, you know, no matter how much you play to win, like there's certain things that are just, uh, you know, abhorrent. Um, and, and this is one, but, um, it would have to be done on such an unprecedented scale, um, that, uh, it's hard to imagine it being sufficient. And mm -hmm. I, I, I hesitate to say that just because like, I don't want it to come across as I'm being nonchalant about, oh, voter suppression, don't worry about it. Um, you know, but it's, it's um, you know, I mean, the other thing, I'll, I'll tell you a Chicago story that um, when I first uh, started doing races out here, I used to love whenever there'd be a problem in one of the polling places, um, I, I, I loved going to check it out myself, uh, whether or not like we were sending an attorney um, as you're supposed to do, because every state has its own system. And I, I just wanted to you know, take in some firsthand knowledge. And I remember one of the first times I went to a polling place, and this was for a, um, this was for Will Gazzardi's um, primary against uh, Tony Barrios. Mm -hmm. um, I went to one of the polling locations and the electronic machine and the paper machine had both broken. <laughs> and so, um, and it's, and it's one of those, like you check this stuff out. Cause it's like, you know, Oh, are there shenanigans going on? It's just, you know, more often than not, it's just that like, they're not that good at operating stuff and the, the machine broke. But what was interesting to me is, so I went and, um, the, there were a couple people who were told like, oh, well, you can put your ballot in this cabinet that we have. And once we get the machines fixed, we'll put it in. And the voters were just like, no, we'll wait. And they, and they waited for a couple hours for things. You know, if, if people want to cast their ballots, yeah. um, you know, many of them will. I'm not saying that everyone will. Voter suppression, voter intimidation, those things will still have an impact. Yeah. Um, but it's really remarkable when you see how committed people can be to make sure that their vote is cast and counted. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think that we are seeing signs of that commitment all around the country. Very uh, excellent point, Dan. I, we, I saw that in uh, Wisconsin in the last primary, which was in the middle of the COVID, people standing in lines, they cut down, talk about voter suppression full force. Uh, they cut, I forget, from like 180 to five, the number of polling places in Milwaukee, people standing in line, social distancing in line, waiting patiently. Uh, no, this is no joke. I, 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 and I say this, I, I wanna make sure what I'm saying is accurate. Um, I have fervently voted many times in my life, either for somebody, or against somebody. Usually it's against somebody. My passion is against. I haven't really loved the candidates since Harold Washington in the 1980s, okay? And, um, but I have, like, the passion that anti Trump voters 
have for voting against Donald Trump and making sure that that anti-Trump vote counts. Dan, I have never seen anything like that on the scale, on this scale. And I go, I could, you could say, well, Ben, what about in 2008, that love that people had for Barack Obama? I don't think as intense as that love that people had for Barack Obama that they had in 2008, I don't think it's as intense as this anti-Trump. People yep. just despise Trump, Dan Cohen. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. So I, I agree with that point you just made. Yeah, and, and the effect on turnout, um, you know, after 2016, there was a lot of discussion about what is most important, uh, swing voters or affecting Democratic turnout and maximizing that. I mean, the, the answer is, of course, they are both critically important. Um, but the the different theories on what will most inspire uh, turnout on the Democratic side were sort of uh, uh, irrelevant. Donald Trump was the answer from the get-go for what yeah. was going to inspire and what is inspiring that turnout. Uh, and that's, that's, that's definitely very helpful. All right, let's close it down with asking uh, a question uh, that sort of uh, delves into what one of your clients at the moment, you mentioned this before we went on the air, uh, that you have a client who uh, is running for, I think, a state legislative seat uh, in a district in uh, Nebraska that's overwhelmingly for Trump. And so uh, my question for you is one that I entertain all the time uh, on this show. I bring on, I just had a couple of people who uh, Democrats from Trump country were on the show earlier today. The Heartland Mamas are on the show. What is the strategy what is the winning strategy for a Democrat running in a red district? Um, so uh, there's a lot of different pieces of that. And, and first off, it depends because each race is unique. Um, so, you know, if you're running against an incumbent Republican in a conservative district, you know, the, the first questions are going to be, um, you know, is are there things about that Republican that that people don't like that they might reject them on? You know, um, are there are there things about your candidate that are going to be frightening to folks, even if they might be open to rejecting the incumbent? There, there's any number of, of factors, but I think what we have to to do, and and this is true with so many different things about elections, is get over the idea of the world just existing as a clean ideological spectrum. Um, you know, we, we, that's the simple way to, you know, people say, well, the people on, you know, like you, you have like very liberal people and very conservative people and moderate people in the middle. And that's not even completely accurate. Uh, you know, the people that we need to turn out uh, tend to be less ideologically driven than the best Democratic voters, same dynamic exists uh, on the on the Republican side. Uh, so, when looking at why someone might be open to voting for a Democrat or you know a voting against a Republican in a conservative district, you know you really have to sit back and say, well, what are the things that people are uh, concerned about that don't fall neatly ideologically. Um, and that could be around like in, in a place around Chicago. I mean, 
you had a whole bunch of people who won races where ideological factors did not come up, but independence and being against corruption became the defining issues of these kind of uh, campaigns. Um, and that was more potent and more helpful for challengers for aldermanic seats than pure ideological positioning, right? Because a lot of the, the corrupt establishment folks are perfectly liberal on the issues, you know, from a roll call perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to look for, you know, what are people wishing that they could have in their elected representation that they're not getting and, and not just think of it as ideological focus on integrity, focus it on, you know, I mean like Biden, people mock him for this a little bit, but I don't think they should, you know, the idea that, um, you know, and, and then we mock people like uh, Buttigieg um, in the primaries, you know, for talking about, uh, you know, civility and, and those kind of concepts. Like, people do actually care about stuff like that. So if you're looking for a wedge, um, you have to look beyond ideology. But then the other thing is um, we also on the left have to do a better job having the credibility on the economic issues that we feel we're entitled to. Um, but we, but, but as a party, the Democrats have not always earned that, um, um, that the, the credibility necessary. You know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, working class people, uh, and this, this is, I mean, across ethnic or racial lines or, you know, what have you, um, we can say that, well, people ought to vote for Democrats in communities like this because we're better on those economic issues. But if folks don't believe that Democrats are better, and there's a lot of good reasons that they might be skeptical of that, then you know, one of the things that the, the Democratic Party has to do, and the progressive community in particular, has to really lead on this front is establishing what that economic justice agenda is in a way that's more meaningful to people that don't agree with us on, you know, classic liberal issues or, you know, you know, what gets mocked as, you know, the cultural elite, um, getting past the stuff on our side that can be a liability that way so we can focus and win better on those bread and butter issues. And when people win, they those upset races, especially coming from the left, you know, that's what we find. They have messages and rhetoric around those issues that are very, uh, that are very unifying, um, that are, um, you know, that, um, you know, don't create a, like, we're the liberals and you're the conservatives and we're better, you know, sense that, um, is a potent attack against Democratic candidates in a lot of these districts. Um, like, we need to do a better job of articulating what we have to offer for folks who um, don't agree with us on everything. Mm. Well put. Dan Cohen, I uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk to us. I'm going to, I uh, won't let as much time go between visits, probably bring you back after the election so we can uh, sift through uh, the results. Who knows how long it'll take before there's a definitive uh, uh, answer as to who uh, is victorious. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I'll say that the, the way that the margins are right now, if these numbers hold up that Biden has, or if he increases the lead, the, the, 
um, the horrifying scenario of, um, you know, weeks going by before we have certainty becomes a lot less likely. Um, but, you know, who, who knows? I mean, who, there's some things about this election that are, you know, uncharted. Yeah. And, and starting with the issue of whether Donald Trump will abide by it. But your basic that last point you made is a good one to leave with. Uh, right now, Joe Biden has a significant lead in the national polls. Uh, he, he's got a surprisingly strong lead in many of these swing states, which should be uh, neck and neck. And Dems always tell me these nervous Dems. The race will tighten. <laughs> race will tighten. I go, you know, sometimes races don't really tighten that much. I got news for you guys. Because uh, I think of it, a lot of these guys, I don't know if you're a sports fan that I can't remember, but a lot of, a lot of, um, there's some, some overlap. You know, there's a, some po- political types are like in the sports. Many are not, but some are in the sports. So they always think of it's like the fourth quarter of a basketball game. You go, well, it's going to tighten. You know, they're going to make that run. I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but, uh, Okay, I forget that metaphor. All right, Dan Cohen, uh, stay safe and sound. Good luck in Nebraska. I hope your guy wins, all right? Um, Thank you. Um, And, yeah, um, looking forward to talking to you again. All right, that's Dan Cohen. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.